It's the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive, and we do it through women's history storytelling on stage here in Berlin and beyond. And then we bring you a fine selection of those stories here on the podcast. Katie Darbisher, co-founder of The Dead Lady Show, is right here in the pink with me to tell you all about this episode's Dead Lady. Hello, Katie. Hi, Susan. I am indeed right here in the pink. We're bringing you the story of an actress whose off-screen life was as dramatic and tragic as many of the characters she portrayed. Romy Schneider was said to have the star power of Greta Garbo or Marilyn Monroe. She was greatly beloved by the public for her performances and yet hounded by the press for her personal decisions. Tale as old as time, really. Mm. Sad. Our story comes from DLS co-founder Florian Dowsens, a writer, translator and educator, and a devotee of tragic glamour. Here he is from the stage at Berlin's Akud. In 1958, <laughs> Romy Schneider was the best-paid actress in Germany and one of the biggest movie stars in Europe. Only 20 years old, she had made 13 movies, including eight in which she was paired with her mother, Magda, who had risen to fame herself back in 1933. Sisi, their first film in a trilogy romanticizing the life of the 19th century Habsburg Empress Elizabeth, was shown in 30 countries at the time, seen by 20 million people in Germany alone, uh, and is still shown on TV here and in Holland every Christmas. <laughs> in China, um, where Sisi was first shown in 1985, uh, which is after Romy's tragic early death, the trilogy was seen by, and this is from an academic paper, 800 million people. Um, and is still shown every Chinese New Year's on state television. Romy would be offered one million Deutschmarks to make a fourth Sissy movie. That would be 2.4 million euros or dollars today, not to mention the 15% of the gross that she would get on top of that. Yet Romy said no. Instead, in 1958, at Vienna's airport, she decided to leave her family and her country behind, changing her ticket from Cologne to Paris to surprise the bad boy co-star she had fallen in love with, Alain Delon. Yeah. <laughs> Mixed feelings in the room. The young couple moved into his mentor's bachelor apartment on the Seine, uh, sleeping on two sofas squished together and using the building's shared bathroom in the hallway. For Romy, however, this was not just a passionate affair or a break from her fame or her family, but an escape from Germany. And though in many ways this was a false start, it was to be the first step in Romy's transformation into a European actress. To start at the beginning... Romy was born Rosemarie Magdalena Albach on the 23rd of September, 1938, a few months after the Austrian capital had become part of Hitler's Germany due to the Anschluss. One month later, she moved to the Bavarian countryside to a house her mother had bought her parents near Berchtesgaden. As a flapper, Magda Schneider had sung and acted in all manner of light comedies. She became popular when she starred in Max Ophüls' drama a romantic drama called Liebelei in 1933. 
Magda would later claim she never left for Hollywood because she loved her homeland too much. Romy's father was Austrian actor Wolfgang Albach Retti, the son of stage actress Rosa Retti of Vienna's prestigious Burgtheater. Amazingly, Romy's grandmother actually saw the real Empress Elizabeth at a mountain inn randomly cleaning her dentures. <laughs> not, not Grandma Rosa's dentures because she was still a child, but the Empress, her, her dentures. Um, Grandma Rosa also met young Hitler when he was still a builder renovating a friend's house and borrowing that friend's Nietzsche. I wish she hadn't. Romy and her younger brother, Wolf, were raised by Magda's parents for the first 10 years of her life, living through World War II far from any bombings. Much later, she would learn that she grew up right near the eagle's nest and had played with the children of Hitler's secretary and other Nazi luminaries. Hitler was a fan of Magda's, and she was on his special Christmas gift list. Her parents were exempted from tax by the propaganda ministry, and though neither starred in actual propaganda films, Romy's father had been a patron member of the SS since 1933 and joining the Nazi party in 1940. He was also a terrible father, only occasionally showing up, um, wearing lederhosen, uh, to teach them curse words or to put uh, Romy in his backpack and bike her around. They divorced when Romy was seven, and she would make uh, her stage name match her mother's. Age 10, she was shipped off to a boarding school run by nuns. Looks a bit like her ancestral home in Sisi, no? Hmm... Uh, Romy always acted in the many, many school plays. Here she is, dressed as a devil and as a cowboy. She, she preferred the male roles. They were more exciting. Um, but her parents never attended. Three days after she left school, 14-year-old Romy went to Cologne for the first time seeing the war's devastation. She also had her first screen test that day, explaining to her diary what being photogenic meant. Some people are very good-looking, but when you take their picture, all their glow is gone. For me, it's the other way around. No, not, not the other way around. Um, <laughs> because not to blow my own horn, I don't even look that stupid off-camera. Definitely not. As a girl, you can tell these things. When she'd become a star, the nuns asked for a portrait to hang in the school entrance, and she sent over one uh, along with a massive color TV. Much later, when she did her first nude scenes, they made her portrait face the wall. Her mother had by now remarried to Hans Herbert Blatzheim, who had become a Nazi party member in 1933. His party involvement was later defined as economically necessary. Romy would start off calling him daddy, uh, later downgrading him to my mother's second husband. Perhaps when the prolific restaurateur started serving chicken breasts a la Romy in his restaurants. This was when she hit puberty. Yeah, it's gross. He'd capitalize on his stepdaughter's fame at every chance and probably also skimmed off her earnings. Here they are, fondueing. Empress Elizabeth, meanwhile, had also been thrust into fame from her home in Bavaria at age 16, 
Her innocence and beauty were meant to revive a monarchy tainted by repressive violence. Suffering horrendous eating disorders, she'd become the first celebrity royal, photographers trailing her everywhere. And though I and many viewers may have loved Romy's sissy for her rebellious tendencies, the movies ultimately define motherhood and marriage as the ultimate achievements for women, not political power or professional accomplishments. They also left out Sissi's very random murder at age 60. After World War II, West Germany was also hearkening back to traditional ideas as it tried to regain some economic and social stability. Austria, meanwhile, didn't actually become an, a country again until 1955, which made the Sissi movies a key tool for national rebranding. Let's forget all about those Nazi years. Remember the glorious Habsburg Empire, all the pastels and the waltzes. Imagine the tourists. In Israel, meanwhile, uh, there were calls for a boycott. We don't want the Israeli youth who didn't experience the atrocities of Nazism to imagine the Germans as sympathetic, polite, romantic, and sensitive people as these German and Austrian films show them. It's also no surprise that the films were blockbusters in monarchies like Holland, Belgium, Spain, Greece, <laughs> all countries eager to connect to more innocent eras. Still, given her parents' pedigrees, it's ironic that Romy was seen as a new face. Taufrisch uh, is the German word that was constantly used. Dewy fresh, uh, untainted. The New York Times review of the abridged Sissy trilogy, the Americans got a three-hour movie that was condensed out of the three movies somehow, um, also described Romy as glowing like a ripe peach. <laughs> Nobody, it appears, believed she was acting. She simply was Sissi, despite the six kilos of wig on her head. <laughs> her mother explained her appeal like this. People feel that here is finally a creature untouched by the filth of the world. Don't tell me you believe any of the other 17-year-olds in cinema are still virgins. In protecting her daughter's image, Magda would prevent Romy from working with Louise Bunuel, signing a three-year deal with Paramount, and acting at the Burgtheater. Instead, she made Romy pick jobs for films, fluffy films that she'd later describe as whipped cream for the soul. But simply fleeing to Paris didn't get Romy out of these movies she'd already signed on to do. So for two years, she basically spun her wheels in Paris while Alain smoldered through hits like Rocco and His Brothers and Purple Noon, which, if you haven't seen it, is the first take on Patricia Highsmith's The Talented Mr. Ripley and... Ooh. Her stepfather, to appease the press, uh, engineered an engagement party where Delon wrecked the teak on daddy's boat. Uh, the couple moved into a house of their own in Paris and became known as Les Fiancés de l'Europe. It's not until 1960 that Delon's biggest fan, director Lucino Visconti, what you're seeing here is Alain Delon through Visconti's eyes, proved to be the rare gay Italian count uh, who has the best intentions for the ladies in question. I'm saying this because on this stage, I have very often told stories of dead ladies who meet gay Italian counts who are up to no good. <laughs> Visconti hired both young actors to play incestuous siblings, 
in the 17th century play, Tis a Pity, She's a Whore. <laughs> the title was censored on the, the French posters. Um, Romy got a crash course of six to eight hours a day in stage French, uh, and this 1961 premiere was attended by Ingrid Bergman, Anna Magnani, Shirley MacLaine, etc. She followed up 120 performances of this with a touring French production of Chekhov's The Seagull. The German press ignored Romy's achievements in France, both for nationalist reasons and more misogynist ones, emphasizing that she was living out of wedlock and generally acting like Brigitte Bardot. <laughs> the French, meanwhile, praised her. No more accent or hardly one. No more appetite. No more bad taste. The transformation is complete. Dressed in and, and by, personally by Coco Chanel, Romy was also drinking more. The French press, as we'll see in the short clip from that year's Cannes Festival, wasn't much better, asking Alain about Romy's plans and then calling her Sissi. Elle va partir de son côté faire des, les films qu'elle a faire hein, avec euh, Orson Welles, c'est l'autre avec Foreman, et moi de mon côté en Sicile. Eh bien, merci d'avoir répondu si gentiment à ces questions indiscrètes. Au revoir Sissi, au revoir Alain Delon. Merci. Ah, Sissi. This dynamic would intensify when Alain broke up with her after four years via a note. Gone to Mexico with Natalie, all the best. Just wait. <laughs> Newspapers suggested the broken engagement was clearly a failure on Romy's part. Maybe she couldn't have kids? It didn't help that Alain married his new girlfriend soon after and they had their first child just months after that. What neither... <laughs> I mean, so beautiful. <laughs> what neither Romy nor the new wife knew, of course, is that Alain already had a son with a pre-Velvet Underground Nico back in 1962. I should stress here that, although insanely beautiful, Alain Delon is also a horrible, horrible person. Um... <laughs> Beating women, collecting weapons, opposing gay adoption, supporting the far right, not to mention using a shoot with Romy to provide a false alibi for a murder. I'm not saying he murdered that person, but he did provide a false alibi. Yet this doesn't stop the internet or me from gawking over Romy and his very long engagement. Romy attempted suicide, leaving scars on her wrist. Professionally, however, her star was rising again, appearing in Visconti's Boccaccio 70 and in The Trial by Orson Welles, who'd call her the best actress of her generation. She soon will be the greatest. Off she went to America. To help sustain the director, there is a kiss from actress Romy Schneider, who chose this particular day to arrive from Europe. I was born in a cold country where it can be cold in December or February or March. After 10 minutes, I asked myself how the actors can speak because you couldn't move anymore. The face, everything was blue. I never had so cold in my life. Romy's part in The Cardinal is vitally important to her career. A popular star in Europe, this is her first appearance in an American film. She has come all this way just to meet her fellow actors and to discuss a role with Preminger. Despite a Golden Globe nomination, her American career would quickly fizzle out. But her roles in films about the war did make her think differently about her family 
and Germany's recent history. In The Victors, she played a violinist forced into sex work um, by the war, and The Cardinal is about an American priest trying to convince the Vatican not to collaborate with the Nazis, to little avail, as history has shown. In 1966, five months pregnant, she married Harry Haubenstock, a Jewish-German stage actor and director who had survived the concentration camp of Neuengamme and made his name directing German adaptations of Broadway hit plays. Perversely, he'd often be cast as Nazis, and he'd taken the stage name of Harry Mayen, which also gives you an indication of the political climate in West Germany at the time. 41 to Romy's 27, he'd already been married for 12 years when they met, but Romy helped pay off the divorce settlement of 200,000 mark, that's 400,000 euro or dollar. They moved to West Berlin's Grunewald, uh, and at this point she had trouble remembering how many films she'd made. 30. But it didn't matter because her husband thought most of them were very silly. A conservative and a close friend of tabloid mogul Axel Springer's Harry also fielded scripts for her, kept track of her weight, and made fun of her lack of formal education. Yeah, nice guy. Never mind that he didn't speak any French. Um, When their son David was born, the baby stayed in a separate apartment with his nanny. Harry slept very late because of his terrible migraines and insomnia, which he treated with addictive sedatives that then exacerbated those original symptoms, etc., etc., Romy would soon follow his example and start taking sedatives. She also took his lead politically, and this in the very exciting late 60s. Um, Then in short order, both Romy's father and her mother's second husband died. But in 1968, Alain called. I know, it's a dramatic return. (laughs) Asking if Romy would act opposite him in a French film called La Piscine, The Swimming Pool. She literally leapt into the air and ran to her bedroom to pack her bags. The press had a field day with Romy and Alain's reunion, of course, and in the film, Romy is luminous, bronzed for the gods, even if the rest of the film confuses toxic masculinity for character. (laughs) Then again, so do most of her movies from this era. Um, La Piscine skyrocketed Romy's career as a French actress, returning her to box office success throughout the 1970s with bold, raw, emotional performances in films like The Things of Life, Max and the Junkman, Caesar and Rosalie, The Train, and especially The Old Gun. In these latter two, she played victims of the Nazis again. In clear terms, she explained why. I take these roles on purpose, to take a stand against the Nazis who still have something to say in Germany. In 1971, she took another stand, signing an open letter by women who'd had abortions. In response, the nuns at her old school finally removed her portrait entirely. (laughs) Romy's grandma quipped, at least they kept the TV. I was shocked to learn that abortion is still technically illegal in Germany, except in the first trimester, with mandatory patronizing counseling and a three-day wait, or in cases of assault, or if the person's physical and or mental health is at risk. So much for progress since 1971. As Romy was taking stands, she even felt brave enough to return to the role that had stuck to her like grease, Um, cream of wheat, I guess, porridge, 
anything sort of sticky and gooey and gross. Playing Sissi in Visconti's four-hour biopic of Sissi's cousin, Mad King Ludwig II. This part of the Empress's life wasn't covered by the original trilogy as the Empress spent her last decade grieving her son, roaming Europe to be anywhere but at the Hofburg Palace. It's hard not to read Romy's appearance here as a comment on her own early fame and escape abroad. I still protect myself by running away. They say I'm eccentric, but they said that even before, when it became clear I hated that prison Hofburg, when it became clear I really could not bear a husband always in uniform, always going to war. Whatever I do or say, they criticize me. So why shouldn't I do as I please? Everyone has always spoken to me about you with great admiration. Yes. When I visit the hospitals, the wounded soldiers cheer me and cry. I carry off official visits very well when I only have to be beautiful and charm someone, just as you are supposed to do here. Uh, Romy herself was also getting ready to leave Berlin and her husband for good. Here's a clip from an earlier film she shot in Hollywood. I adore my life. Remember when I always said in school there are some girls born to be single? Well, I'm one of them. I just love being free. Not that marriage isn't good for other girls. It obviously agrees with you, Min. You know, I expected you to look all uh, married and plump and I don't know. You're divine. I, I felt so bad when I heard about you and Howard getting a divorce. I don't know, somehow I expect you look different. What? With dark circles under my tear-stained eyes? It's something like that, yeah. <laughs> i tell you something, Min. Every girl should be married to Howard Ebbets, at least once. It is like hitting your head against a wall. It feels so good when it stops. <laughs> Leaving him was the most wonderful thing ever happened to me. It absolutely restored my faith in divorce. Yes. In a letter to a friend, Romy wrote in English, let's split all that fucking money and divorce. <laughs> Incidentally, she was terrible with money, chased by the French tax office in her final years, and it was actually the money that Harry got from her in the divorce that would provide for her child after her death. In an interview the ex-couple did after they finalized the divorce, Romy told Harry, if we're being honest, it's been a comfortable, superficial life. Like most people, we got lazy after the first two years. We no longer bothered. In the evenings, there was too much salat and TV. Outside of my job, I never had any interests, and if so, only superficial ones. This job is dangerous for someone like me, easily bewitched by external charms. You flutter off to imaginary heights. You run away from yourself, forget to come back. Gomi moved to Paris with their son and soon started dating her dashing young assistant, Daniel Biazzini, 24 to her 35, whom she married in Berlin in 1975. And they had a daughter, Sarah, two years later. Though perhaps a bit too fond of the trappings of fame and fortune, Daniel was a devoted stepfather to her son, David. And his parents also showered the boy with love. And while a collaboration with Fassbinder never materialized, nor biopics of early feminist Fanny Zurevendlo or left-wing terrorist Ulrike Meinhof imagine. The late 1970s found Romy too showered with major awards for uninhibited performances in That Most Important Thing, Love, Group Portrait with Lady, her first in Germany in a long, long time, and A Simple Story. Privately, however, Romy would soon face horror after horror. 
1979, her ex-husband Harry killed himself, and the press loved watching her grieve. That year, she took a darkly prophetic turn in a dystopian film called Death Watch. Set in a grim world where most disease has been eradicated, Romy plays a woman who gains fame for nevertheless suffering a terminal illness and runs away from the press, her final days still broadcast nightly as filmed by Harvey Keitel through a camera implanted in his eyes. Her son has an unexplained cameo in the film. The German press had always hounded her, and it didn't help that a lot of her remaining German friends were journalists, or that her own mother would leak stories on her. When she divorced Daniel, the tabloids really went in on her, but when her son David died in a gruesome accident while trying to climb over the fence of his step-grandparents' house, newspapers sent photographers into the morgue dressed as doctors, the photos of his corpse featuring on magazine covers for the rest of her life. David was 14 and a half. Persecuted by the press, who used remote control cameras hidden in trees to capture images of the grieving Romy, she fell deeper into drugs and alcohol, which took an especially hard toll on her after she lost her right kidney. Her kind new boyfriend, Laurent, 10 years younger, tried his best to flush her hidden stashes down the toilet. At a dinner on the night of May 28th, 1982, the pair showed off pictures of the new place he helped buy in her beloved French countryside. When they got home at 2 a.m., Romy sent Laurent to bed after they peeked in at sleeping Sarah. She just wanted to write a letter canceling a photo shoot. The next morning, he found her slumped at her desk, dead, the letter ending in a long stroke. Though there were also red wine and pills on her desk, the prosecutor chose not to hold an autopsy so as not to, quote, destroy the myth saying, quote again, Sisi was not supposed to embark on her last voyage to the Forensic Institute. I couldn't bring myself to turn her into a carcass. Survived by her daughter, brother, and mother, Romy was buried alongside her son under her birth name. In her 28-year career, Romy made 63 films. <laughs> so watch those. She's never less than riveting to watch. If you want to know more, there's one book, an academic book in English, called Romy Schneider, A Star Across Europe by Marion Hellett, came out this year. Um, in German and French, this is some of my research, you're spoiled for choice, most horrendously trashy. Case in point, Hildegard Knef's biography, called Romy, Marlene Dietrich, in her personal copy of the book, scrawled, let's all get together and fight Hildegard Knef. On the cover, she wrote, be sure she doesn't write about me. <laughs> um, the best German biographies I read were by Günther Krenn, who wrote one classic biography, one on Romy and Alain, uh, and one very interesting one on Romy, Magda, and Grandma Rosa. Romy was 43 years old when she died. Her story mirrors that of Sisi and of Diana, but also Judy Garland and Britney Spears, women thrown into public roles at a very young age whose sexuality and motherhood was policed by a misogynist, pernicious press. In Romy's short life, she unshackled herself from the role that brought her fame, reinvented herself in new languages, and brought to life women who didn't embody empire and nationalism. Instead, Romy embodied vulnerability and willpower and joy, and mischief, and love, and above all, lightness. 
let's give her the last word from an interview in 1974. I want to play different roles. Give it my best. And I'm, I'm critical, too. I know when I'm bad, mediocre, and really good, I don't rely on anyone else for that. As for Cece, that chapter is finally over. I forgot Cece long ago. If she still haunts other people, that's their problem, not mine. I've had opportunities. Now I have to see what's next. For me, my career is not about summits. I want to keep working and keep learning and then eventually find the right moment to stop. Maybe I still have a lot of time until then, but I'm not counting on anything. Whatever I want to do, I want to do it soon. Thank you. Tones of Romy Schneider. Florian's talk on Romy was recorded live with help from Akuds Thomas Beckmann and Johannes Braun. Did you catch that reference there near the end to our last featured dead lady, Hildegard Knief and her partially poisoned pen? Oh, Hildegard Knief. Yes, <laughs> I did. Uh, a difficult uh, subject. Yes, it's. Uh, I wouldn't call her your dead lady, but not <laughs> <laughs> oh, my dead lady. <laughs> I picked her. I talked about her. Yeah, I learned too much in the process. Indeed, and if you haven't heard that episode, please do go back and listen to it. It's interesting to kind of compare that to Wilmy's story. And this ends our short two-part accidental series on German-speaking starlets. It does. <laughs> Now, you'll have noticed that Florian is fascinated by Sissy, a.k.a. Empress Elizabeth of Austria. And if you are picking up on that fascination, you're spoiled for choice at the moment. Not only can you revisit Romy Schneider's portrayal of her, and Florian would advise you to do so, uh, but there's also a highly acclaimed film about her called Corsage that came out last year, and a six-part series on Netflix, also from 2022. And of course, we'll have some photos and film clips for you in our episode notes over at deadladyshow.com slash podcast and on social media at deadladyshow. Thanks for that, Katie. And thank you to Florian for the fascinating talk. I myself have never seen a sissy film or a Romy film. Me neither. Uh, well, actually, at the show, your son said you had. Oh, you see, I always forget what films I've seen. <laughs> Apparently, I have. I've... Oof. I have a memory for films. It's incredible. I remember Dead Ladies, though. Well, maybe it's time to remedy that and uh, and check one out. <laughs> Recheck one out. Yes. <laughs> I would also like to give a shout out to our Patreon supporters who help us out over on patreon.com slash Podcast, where we treat them to exclusive monthly audio segments like reviews and interviews in our Dead Lady Book Club. This month, I'm talking about beloved American children's book author E.L. Konigsberg, we also have a few logo goodies on offer as well. And I want to say welcome to our newest member, Fallon Gold. 
Hooray. Yay. We really appreciate your support. So why not join up and become a Dead Lady listener, Dead Lady lover, or Dead Lady librarian? Those are the three levels you can support us at. We also do have a few unlocked posts over there as well, so you can get a taste of what's going on. And we have a new tea Public store with logo shirts, totes, mugs, even pillows, and we'll leave a link for you in the episode notes. Thanks also to everyone out there supporting us by listening and sharing us with others. And thank you to the Borg Hulzhoff Centre for Literature in Münster, where Florian first presented his talk about Romy Schneider at their Droste Festival. The Dead Ladies Show was founded by Florian Dousens and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast is created, produced and edited by me, Susan Stone. And that music you hear is our jazzy theme tune, Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. We'll be back next month with another fabulous dead lady. Goodbye. Goodbye.